Hello, you're listening to the Art of Dying Well podcast with James Abbott and Steph McGillivray. Hello and welcome to the Art of Dying Well podcast. Now, I don't know if you can hear it. I actually can and it's annoying me slightly. We have got builders in the wonderful Victoria area of London. They seem to be building all the time. So there might be a little bit of angle grinding and general noise in the background. If you can hear it and it annoys you, I apologise. Because what we're actually here to do is to talk about death, dying. And in particular, this month, we're focusing on the military, aren't we, Steph? We sure are, James. Now, you spoke to Bishop Richard Moth, who currently is the Catholic Bishop of Arundel and Brighton on the South Coast, but was formerly Catholic Bishop of the Forces, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Um, So he was the, as you say, the former uh, Bishop for the Forces, which meant that he was essentially a a chaplain to people in in the armed forces and sort of service personnel in general, which is a really, really interesting and challenging role, as he tells us later on. Now, there have been all kinds of um, syndromes and other such things associated with stress in the military Mm -hmm. and, um, I I guess, having to see some fairly horrendous things at times. And Bishop Richard, there's a method to to what I'm saying here. Bishop Richard was also and is the lead bishop for uh, mental health issues for the Catholic Church, isn't he? So he kind of can cross quite a few subject areas that we're talking about today, whether it's mental health, chaplaincy, death and dying, bereavement when it comes to the military. And, and really that, that sort of spectre of death m- must hang over an awful lot of our military personnel. Absolutely. You know, having to sort of, for some people, having to be faced with the with the possibility of it every day. But also, as you say, with bereavement, possibly of, of a friend for if you're, you know, a colleague maybe, or if you are someone who's at home and your husband, wife, daughter, son are away then, you know, you are also faced with that. And the mental health thing is quite interesting, actually, because you don't often, well, one might not often think about things like losing a limb in war. And that Mm. itself is a type of bereavement, which will really, really challenge you in a mental health sense. You know, it's a lot to overcome, because you your life is changed. Yeah, yeah, you're not as you were, and sometimes Mm. coming to terms with that must be rather tricky. So, right, let's get straight into it, Steph. This is uh, your very good self speaking to Bishop Richard Moth, and you started off by asking him exactly what it was like for those serving personnel facing these types of issues. Well, the first element in this lies in their training. So people in the armed forces have a lot of training for the the role that they have to fulfil, Um, and through all of that they have the support of their chaplains and they know that their chaplains will be with them wherever they go. A lot of work is also done by the medical teams in the military to show to um, personnel that in the event of injury the best possible care will be brought to them as quickly as possible. Um, And so that's a great comfort to them. Um, Back in the 80s I myself was involved with exercises Uh, with um, territorial army hospitals and our task there was to show to uh, serving soldiers what would happen to them if they were injured um, and to to to, so that they could have the confidence in the system um, and know that in the the event of injury and so often those injuries are are so dreadfully severe um, that um, care could be got to them 
very, very quickly indeed. And so in Afghanistan, for instance, um, the um, helicopters that went out to collect casualties uh, would have a small surgical team in the back of them, which meant they could almost start operating as soon as the casualty was picked off the ground. That's part of that training, that formation, if you like, in preparation for all that they're going to face. The experience of other soldiers, more senior personnel who've been on operations, they'll learn a lot from that. And they they do very much appreciate the presence of chaplains. I know in Afghanistan, chaplains that were in the bishopric in my time would be in forward operating bases with the men and would sometimes be there as they left on patrol to pray with them as they left the operating base uh, and of course would travel with them usually by air from one operating base to another. They were there with them at the, the sharp end of things as it were and that, that brings huge comfort mm. um, to personnel. I can imagine and just in terms of having that presence I would think would be such a helpful thing just in terms of actually trying to maintain a positive attitude maybe towards the idea of maybe being injured or something else and do you think that presence helps to promote positive attitudes towards death and dying because I I imagine in the military talking about what a good death is is actually completely different to you know you and me talking about what a good death for me might be. Yes, I know if you're on operations and the prospect of a, a violent and sudden death is in front of your eyes and in your mind all the time, one would imagine, because I've obviously never been in that situation myself, one would imagine that a good death would be where you had your mates around you, where prayer was possible for you, the chaplain was there, and that you were conscious that you were supported and, and, and really loved, and I use that word advi- advisedly, loved by the, the guys and girls with whom you serve, because um, they'll do absolutely anything for one another, and knowing that that is around you at those really difficult moments uh, I think is a huge comfort to people. So it, it's not something that serving personnel will talk about very much, but I'm quite sure that it's there in their minds that the support of their mates is really key at those those very, very, very hard times. Mm. And I imagine maybe a word which used to be used more is probably morale, keeping the morale up to have your mates around you. But mm. also, I think these days, for me especially, I would translate that into mental health and having good mental health by having mm. the support of your friends around you, but also having, you know, the support of chaplains. Yeah, and the, the 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 mental health piece in the military is something that's, that on which there's been a huge amount of work in more recent years, and uh, it's a good few years ago now where work began initially with the Royal Marines, um, who gave personnel just some indications of what to look out for in the people with whom they served. So they worked on what they call a buddy buddy system. Um, so one Marine would keep his eye on the other. And they do that for each other so that if they noticed things weren't quite right, they could just, at a very low level, if you like, just talk to one another and support one another. Uh, and if something more was needed, it could be brought in more quickly. Um, and I think that's that's brought about a bit of a, a, a sea change in the, uh, in the military community, whereas in days gone by, um, it was very much to do with stiff upper lip, tough it out. That's still there and it needs to be. You can't do what they, they do unless you've got a bit of that in you you can't yeah. lose it completely but there's also a, a greater sensitivity 
to mental health needs. And I, I remember visiting um, regiments in the in the army where uh, commanding officers were saying that they found soldiers were much better at talking about these issues than they had been in years gone by. And so you're talking there about officers who've done many years of service and they themselves had seen uh, a change uh, in the, the attitudes towards mental health uh, needs in the military over those years. So I think we are in a very different position than would have been the case you know, back in, in the, the Falklands War, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously we've been talking about those who are serving, but then, you know, they also have all their family at mm-hmm. home. And do you think that bereavement is different for families of those in the military or for those in the military who might lose, you know, a fellow soldier? Yes, I'd, I'd come at that from two directions, I think. One is the fact that um, if you're part of a military family... Part of that existence is that your wife, your husband, your son, your daughter has the possibility of deployment. And that deployment means that that person is putting themselves in harm's way. So you live with that all the time, with that possibility. And how families prepare for that will vary from one family to another. For one family, the preparation for it um, will be very much rooted in their in their faith. Uh, for another, it might just be in the more human support that they have for one another. It will come from all sorts of different directions. But that possibility will always be there, especially in times where, as in, in the Afghanistan conflict, you've got protracted deployments over many, many years, and the same family member deploying twice, three, four times during the course of that conflict. So you're living with that all the time. So the military in itself has a number of very good support systems. The welfare officer will often remain behind when a regiment deploys in the army, for instance, to be with families. A lot of the programs that the military run for their families, support groups for wives and um, events for children and all those sorts of things, continue right through the course of a deployment. Um, So there's a lot of support there a lot of places that people can go to for support and a lot that is offered. The way the bereavement happens is perhaps different. Mm. The loved one will not be there in front of you, will be thousands of miles away. The way you're informed will be different. So the military have what they call their kin-forming system, where a chaplain and a serving officer will visit the family. You can only imagine how somebody feels when they see those two people walking up their driveway. And then every support will be given to the family. The other thing is then that if you're a part of a military family, at some stage the loss of a serving member of the family will eventually lead to the loss of your home. And I do know that all three services offer as much support as they possibly can. And in the first instance, that support comes very, very quickly. But in the longer term, there are a lot of implications that perhaps would not be there for civilian families. Mm. Yeah, it strikes me as well that bereavement might kind of extend to a much wider um, wider range of things, your home, even, you know, those other people around you when you eventually have to move. You're losing mm. a sort of wider military family as well, aren't you? But I also tend to think that if you have an injury, for example, you lose a limb that is also a loss in in the sense you have to then grieve in a sense that you have lost mm. a part of a physical part of yourself but also 
an identity because you probably won't be able to go back to no. you know your job and your life now that's a very good um, question Steph because the if, if the, the the military has looked very carefully at re-employing people who have lost limbs and of course limb loss is not the only injury there mm. are so many others but the, the, that's the kind of injury that has been covered very widely in the media I knew people serving in the military who had lost limbs and were back doing administrative jobs in the military that's not uncommon but the difficult slight difficulty is there are so many only so many of those jobs around yeah and the other thing is if you've lived your life being very very active the thought of then sitting behind a desk is not attractive and so um, one of the reasons that our military personnel recover really uh, at least physically very well from limb loss is that, that you're starting with a very fit human being to begin with they tend to be young the surgery is very good these days and the prosthetics that are available are just amazing um, so on the physical level there are a lot of new possibilities open up and you know we've seen that in things like the, the Paralympics um, but uh, the other piece of this is what is going on in your mind and we do know that the uh, a lot of the impact the mental health impact only shows itself sometimes many many years 10 12 15 years after the traumatic event a lot needs to be in place then to help people through all of that process now the military now does have a process they call decompression which um, personnel go through when they leave a conflict zone on their way home that's worked well if you go back historically people went to war by sea so coming home took two three weeks mm. and now it takes a few hours that space is no longer there to process some of the stuff that you've been through and so the, the military have built in this decompression phase which involves work with medics with chaplains to talk you through some of that experience and also prepare you for the fact that you're going home perhaps to a family where the wife has been running the show for the last six months yeah and so you can't go back in and imagine that it's going to be just as it was when you left right so there's quite a lot of good work going on there i think the struggle comes when people leave the armed forces the mental health package that they might have had will probably have been very good but you then leave the military setting all those supports that you've lived with for perhaps many years are no longer there and you're coming into a setting where the speed of the mental health cover will not be as good and and that is causing some difficulties for people right. so i think that you know there's work to be done there in our civilian mental health services to respond to the needs of, of these people who've gone through very traumatic experiences and they need people to counsel them who will understand what they have been through so charities like combat stress right. um, are, are heavily engaged in that that sort of work and mm. the the centers that have been set up by help for heroes are providing some of that need for mm. ex-personnel yeah well, a huge thank you to Bishop Richard Moth for taking the time to come and talk to us about something which he has um, really an amazing insight on. And it was quite moving, I have to say, actually, doing that interview, hearing some of his stories. It was really fascinating. He's a very pastoral man, isn't he? He is. He's, yeah, he's very caring and, and a man of the people, I Definitely. would say. So if you want to hear more from us in the future or from the past... You can subscribe to our Art of Dying Well podcast in many ways, and here are a few.
why not subscribe to the Art of Dying Well podcasts? Just search for the Art of Dying Well on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Well, yeah, look, there's some hammering going on in the background, and it, you know, I'm slowly losing my rag, but we will carry on. <laughs> so that is how you can subscribe to listen to more of us if that's what you want. Steph, we are changing format. Is that allowed? It is allowed, James. Change is the most stable thing, my brother always says. Oh, he's Bit wise, annoying, really, isn't it? Wise beyond his years, your brother, <laughs> I think. So, for one month only, we will depart from our usual death chatter that would follow now, and indeed, our view from the chaplain's chair. I think Bishop Richard Moth has given us that sort of hybrid of main interview and nice solid Chaplain C foundational stuff as well. He has, bit of a multitasking podcast there. Yeah, so he's done well. So, we thought, because... Well, it's been a hundred years since the First World War. You know, we're, uh, I suppose a hundred years since the end next year in 2018. And of course, for November, as we all know, we're moving up to that period of remembrance. And we thought it would be rather poignant and a very good idea to take a look at a resource called Beyond Our Tears. Uh, That's basically focusing our minds on prayers and remembrance ahead of November. Uh, Churches Together in Britain and Ireland produced this. And we are specifically going to focus on those stories. We want to hear about people's experiences, actually. So three stories we have, and we've had these voiced up, I would say by professional actors. But what I will actually say is by people with nice voices in the building. Yeah, so we get the view from those on the front line we get the view from somebody back home obviously anxious pregnant as well but i won't give too much of that away and these are just three i think very poignant and moving stories really of what it must have been like back then and probably is still like in the various modern battlefields and conflict zones so um let's start with sergeant thomas painting My name's Sergeant Thomas Painting of the 1st Battalion, King's Royal Rifle Corps. At the Battle of the Enn, we got over the river and onto the high ground, over a mile in front of the Enn. We knew there was about a brigade of Jerry's against us, and we were only seven platoons. During the fight, we got pushed back about 300 yards. We had to leave our wounded and our dead. The Highland Light Infantry and Worcesters came up. Private Wilson of the HLI and one of our men attacked a machine gun. Our man got killed, but Private Wilson killed the machine gunner and captured the position and got the Victoria Cross. Our man got a wooden cross. That's the difference, you see. One killed, one a Victoria Cross. My name's Kitty Eckersley, the wife of a soldier on the front line. When I found out that I was pregnant, I went to see them at the Leatherworks and they said they would find me some light work. So I had a very nice job and worked there until I was seven months pregnant. I didn't go out much because I had a very bad time during my pregnancy. The only thing I could keep in my stomach was carrots. 
They were cheap, so I had two pounds of carrots every day. I was very thin at the time. My mother had a little job picking strawberries at a jam factory, so there was only me in the house when I heard the postman come. I knew there would be a letter for me, so I ran down in my nightdress and opened the door, snatched the letter off him and ran in and shut the door again. I opened the letter and saw it was from his sergeant. It just said, I'm very sorry to tell you of the death of your husband. Well, that was as far as I could read. I don't really know what happened over the next few minutes, but I must have run out of my house as I was, in my bare feet, and banged on the next door. They brought some blankets and wrapped me up in them and sent for my mother. So she came home and treated me for shock. His letter was only from his sergeant, so I thought perhaps it was an error. So later on, I wrote back to the sergeant, but I had another letter to say that he also had been killed. Then, later on, I got the official news. My name's Sergeant Jack Dorgan of the 7th Battalion, Northumberland Fusiliers. Private Bob Young was conscious right to the last. I lay alongside of him and said, Can I do anything for you, Bob? He said, Straighten me legs, Jack. But he had no legs. I touched the bones and that satisfied him. Then he said, Get me wife's photograph out me breast pocket. I took the photograph and put it in his hands. He couldn't move. He couldn't lift a hand. He couldn't lift a finger. But somehow, he held his wife's photo on his chest. And that's how Bob Young died. Yeah, beautiful there. Moving, very moving stories. Well, that's it, Steph, for this month. It is. And you know what? What? Next month, it's the Art of Dying Well's one-year anniversary. Wow. Twelve months. A whole year. It's, and it's been a great year. We've really enjoyed doing the project, and I've loved doing the podcasts. Steph, you are brilliant. It has been very <laughs> enjoyable. We've covered lots of ground, but also there's there's much to cover, isn't there? There is. And there's this is the, you know, the I guess just the nature of the subject. There are so many different individual experiences to explore and people to talk to and stories to hear. I tell you what, listeners, if you've got a story or a subject area or something you want us to cover, we'd be absolutely delighted to hear from you. The Art of Dying Well at gmail.com is the, uh, I keep saying old fashioned traditional way, that's our email address. Steph, for those more into their social media, how do they get in touch? Well, you can uh, get us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all with the handle at Art of Dying Well, which uh, you have taken great pleasure in making fun of me for today because I forgot what it was earlier, didn't I? I'm not sure how you can live with yourself, if I'm honest. No, quite easily done. We've got the word the at the start of things and then not in others. Perhaps we should be more consistent. 
Well, it's been a pleasure, Steph. Thanks ever so much, as usual. As always, James. Well, it only remains to say we'll look forward to being back with you next month. Thank you, dear listeners. <laughs>